Um, if you have your Bibles, open them up. Uh, probably page one or two of your Bible. We're in Genesis chapter three, first book of your Bible. If you don't have one, there's a whole bunch that look like this. We'd love to give them to you. Go grab them. That's our gift to you. Um, you can also open your apps, but honor system, no candy crush allowed. Um, really want you to be in your Bibles. Uh, we're, we're in a series launching from this, the opening scenes of Scripture to understand the entirety of the story and how it, it's our story. And we're talking about this idea of created, God's good design, unpacking a, a fundamental and, and robust doctrine called the Imago Dei. That, that's the image of God. We open that up on, on day one of this series, which means from Genesis chapter tw- uh, 1, verse 26, we're created in his image, which speaks more to the effect than the affect of who we are. That means more than how you're wired than what you're wired for. It's not about the emotionality, it's about your purpose. And, and today, as we read in the text in chapter 3, we're going to be reading um, from 5 to 13 and 21 to 24. We, we get to see how, how this all falls apart. And today, we're actually going to focus in on relationships. So I know this is a topic you're all really good at. So my wife tells me I have to tell when I'm using sarcasm because I don't do that. This is going to be one that's... that's useful for us because it's an area that's very pertinent. It's actually, this is the church. This is relationships and, and, and how they're broken, how they're rebuilt, and how God's made us for them. So hopefully that was enough time for you to open up your Bibles, reading from chapter 3, verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to, be make, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I've commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat it and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, again, I I say it sarcastically, but I I actually, I love talking about relationships. Uh, This this is something where I'm intrinsically and and tirelessly wired uh, because this is at the the foundation of who we are as people. This, This is what makes me interested in being a pastor. And this is what is, is so encouraging to me as we've been building in this series, uh, not just talking about 
who we are, but what we've been given, you know, as tasks to do. Corey did an excellent job last week talking about how we're created in the image of God and, and the image that we gave you, the, the representation we gave you. And in in day one was we're, we're like mirrors, mirrors that are designed to do one thing, and that's reflect. And as they look at Creator God, capital C, they, they have uh, the ability to reflect His light and His warmth that they do not have in and of themselves. A mirror cannot ignite itself. And when we are reflecting the goodness of our Creator, we are filled with the radiance of His brilliant light and warmth. That's our job. That's how you create it. That's what we're supposed to do. That's our work, and that's how we ought to operate in relationships. Now, when we talk about relationships, we need to understand that we're built for them, we're built by them, and we're built in them. Now, we're going to spend the least amount of time talking about how we're built for relationships because I think this is self-evident. In other words, you look around quite quickly, you, you, you receive that to be true. We can see that in the text, but we also just see that in ourselves. I mean, at the end, fingers crossed, of a two-year experiment where we've done social global isolation, what have we learned? We need relationships. Even the most introverted person after about three months goes a little squirrely. What's fascinating to me, and, and I've spoken with a, a doctor, he's written his PhD and done his studies on, on the use of digital relationships and their effect on, on relationships, people's mental health, and, and what that means for society. And I was like, what's the outcome? He's like, it's not good. And yet about a quarter of Gen Z, if you don't know what that is, that's like think younger than me, have deliberately chosen to do their life completely digitally after this season. Sociologists and psychologists would agree. We're in trouble because we're made for relationship. You make sense of this world through relationship. You make sense of yourself through relationship. This is attachment theory 101, which basically says this. You're messed up because your parents were messed up. That's a gross oversimplification, but it, it works. The issues you have are, are, are a factor of the fact that we all have issues. We're built for relationship. It, we are a congregational, tribal, pack-oriented people. We clump together in groups. We work together in families. We make sense of our reality through relationships. We see that as a self-evidence. But, but again, look in the text. Actually, I'm going to refer to a few things that we've looked at already. You'll have to just flip back a page or two. But God says, let us... God who exists in perfect eternal relationship in the head-exploding idea of the Trinity. In our image, relational beings, the, the one problem that we see as God creates and he steps back at his creation is man is alone. And it's not his aloneness that's a problem. It's that he's not fit to the task in his aloneness. So God creates a, a partner, a helper to enhance and to complete. And he's like, that's good. We're made to be in relationship. Relationship with God, relationship with others, and relationship with self. If you struggle to see that in the text, hang in there, I'll show you. Um, but it's this idea of you as a person are a relational being. Church, and this is where I geek out, because church, we're not a building, we're not an institution, we're not a charity, we are a people. We're relationships. That's why I love Cinnamon Bun Sunday. Because the fact that you are building, you, you are the welcome team. You are the body. You are, you are the, the health of the church is in your relationships. 
And, and, and I mean, that's a great comfort to me. It doesn't rise and fall on leadership or preaching. It's built in you and the relationships that you have and that we grow. And we hope to see roll out over this city. So for relational people, we need to talk about uh, this idea of, of as image bearers, as mirrors. How do, we, how do we enact the way that we're supposed to have relationship with each other, with God and ourselves? Now, uh, let me start with where this breaks down. You'll notice, uh, I, I said this already, but we make sense of ourselves and our world, our reality through relationships. If you're a parent, you know this to be true. If you're just capable of remembering your childhood, you might remember this as well. You understand your world based on your, your parents and the world that they present you. And then something called adolescence happens, and there's a, a, a you know, stereotypical rebellion as you're kind of aware of all that they were hiding from you. And we see something very similar happening in the text, that, that Adam and Eve, although likely uh, in, in maturity and adult physicality, they're very childlike, not knowing good from evil, having an innocence in their quality. And we, we see that very clearly in the text. And, and they enter into this discussion, and it's not the fact that they're talking to a, a talking serpent. It's that they're tolerating what he's saying that is a problem. Look at, look at verse 6. It says, So when woman saw that the tree was good for food, and, and I think we can say woman and man. He was right there. Okay, if anyone wants to take this and blame their spouse, don't. <laughs> when she saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to, desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. So, so not a deep exposition, but just to get you to slow down in your Bible reading, what do you see? She saw the fruit, and she's like, that's, that's edible. I can participate in that. She saw that it was desirable, delight to the eyes. Actually, the ancient Hebrew would, has an idea of this was lustful in a sense. Like, like I got to have this kind of craving. So we know that it wasn't a pineapple. A few of you are paying attention. She sees it, and she goes, I want that. But what's really interesting, she says, desire to make one wise, that there, there is a promise hidden behind this of a reality and experiences and something that would open up a world that was denied her. This is Eve leaning in going, you know what, perhaps I can trade in being an image bearer for a shot caller. And that's where rebellion takes place. We actually see the fracture points of relationship breaking in this moment of the story. Why? Because we see a lie entering in and grabbing hold in their hearts. You see, mirrors, as, as people made in the image of God, meant to reflect his goodness to creation, mirrors that no longer fixate on their creator but on created things become strangely dim and cold. And they can't ignite themselves. We're meant for relationship. What we need to talk about then, as we talk about this idea of, well, since this has been fractured, this has been broken, that there, there's an inherent problem in our relationships, is that we're, we're built by them. Again, we... we why are we? Why do we feel like we're messed up? Well, we've been raised by messed up people, and this is the generational gift that we're going to give to every generation behind us. This is the the state of things. 
This is why we have a struggle with self. This is why we have struggle with others. And ultimately, it stems from our broken relationship with our creator. We, we have to acknowledge here in, in this moment that as mirrors that are no longer reflecting his light and his warmth, his radiant brilliance to creation, we've grown dark, we've grown cold. And, and I would encourage you this way. If you look at the text... We, we see the fracturing of all three. If you look at the text, it says that God comes in the cool of the garden. I, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but the word for that uh, is translated there is actually ruach, which is wind, which often in the Old Testament speaks to the spirit of God, God who is spirit. You could read that, this as if to say God's spirit moved through the garden. His presence was like breathing through the trees. And in that moment, you know, you, you can't hide. It, it's wonderful that God plays along with the little pageantry of what's happening here. At the moment they take of the fruit and they eat, what does it say? That they realize that, verse 7, they were naked. They, they realize that what? There's guilt. We, we transgressed. We did something we shouldn't have. But we're in a wrong standing before God. We, think of Adam's Bible. It's more like a pamphlet. You got one job and one commandment. This is, this is my garden. You get to live in it. Work it. Keep it. And there's one tree over there, and you, you don't eat from it. You got that, Adam? You, you see, when, when, did, when did the relationship that he was built in become start to fracture? It was this moment where there's this creature, created thing, in the garden, who's opposing the good word of the Creator. And Adam, who was supposed to work and was supposed to keep, stands idly by. I mean, where, where do you think relationships started to splinter here? Was it when they ate the fruit alone, or was it in the moment where when he should have stepped in front of his wife and pointed a finger at the snake and said, whoa, 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 whoa. If you're going to question the goodness of the creator, let me take you to him. But you don't talk to my wife. And where the wife, where Eve, instead of saying, you know, that fruit looks really good. Instead of being an image bearer, I could be a shot caller, could have actually turned to the work that she was given saying, you know, honey, I, I think we have other things to do, other places of the garden to be. We know relationships begin fracturing when our our gaze is no longer fixated on the creator, but created things. We know that these fractures take place when uh, the relationship we have with God is no longer front and center. And, and look how this breaks down relationally. So, so first of all, with God, they hide. I mean, you have to, if you've ever played hide and seek with little kids, and you're like, where are you? And they're like, we're here. It's, like, it's kind of like that. <laughs> he knows. But then he, he, he goes along, right? Why are you hiding? Well, we're naked. Well, well, who told you? Like the innocence that was supposed to be there. Who told you you were naked? Did you do something you shouldn't have? Of course you did. But, but brokenness between men and women. Brokenness in our relationships with each other. He did it. She did it. And then brokenness with self. Shame. 
says that they realized that they were naked. And he says, I, God, I knew your presence was in the garden, so I hid. God, I couldn't, I couldn't be exposed. I couldn't be vulnerable. I, I'm not even comfortable with myself, so I had to hide. You know, this, this idea of shame, it's so, so common and, and familiar to us that actually when, when Scripture describes what a right relationship with God looked like before the fall, it, it's described this way, and they knew or had no shame. Like, we don't even understand that. It, it's, it's a picture of complete innocence, but, but maybe even deeper than that. There was just no need to have markers for for. Feeling guilty, feeling wrong, feeling ashamed, feeling like you have to hide, feeling you have to cover up. What do they do instantly as they have that feeling? They, they, they clothe themselves with fig leaves. I got to hide. I got I to gotta cover up. You know, now here's the thing. We know this to be true as we talk about ourselves. The, the gospel of our present age says this. Salvation lies within you. Just look down. Dig deep. You'll find it. I mean, keep, keep going. Stop for nothing. Listen to nobody. It, it, it's in there. You just have to find it. And, and, and here's where I'll burst the bubble of the gospel of our culture, destroy the experiment of our very paper-thin self-esteem, is because whatever you look down deep enough and find, you're going to have to retrieve and present to everybody else, and it's only valuable if everybody else affirms it. That tells me that you and I are relational beings. That tells me that you're not a lone wolf. That tells me that you can't stand alone and be like, it, and thump your chest. It's all about what I think. I'm okay. I'm a, I'm a self-made person. No. You, you look for your meaning and your acceptance in other people. And, and we crush ourselves by looking inward or to other people. This is the narcissistic experiment that, that is our culture. And I say that because that's, that's the word that's being thrown around a whole lot lately. That's how we label the people we work with when they talk about themselves too much, even though that's a wrong understanding. Because the Greek mythology of narcissists, from where we get the word, it, it tells, and there's various versions, but it tells of a young man who is so enthralled with his reflection that he, he dies pining away looking at his reflection in the water. Or some tellings would say that he, wanting to get too close, actually goes under the water itself and drowns. The, the picture is this. He went so deep into himself and found nothing there, only destruction. And we, we, we throw that label onto our culture. And, and, and church, that's really where we're going. Because the gospel narrative of our culture is this. Just keep going. Keep going deep. You'll find it. It's there. And you will be like, and actually psychology textbooks, one I found this week, I thought it was very helpful. Shame is the neg uh, negative, a negative outlook turned inwards. It's a mirror looking in on itself to discover there's nothing there. There's no inherent light or warmth that it can generate in and of itself. It's empty. And what happens when you face, you know, think of our relationships with each other. You face two mirrors in front of each other. You get that really cool effect where it's like reflection upon reflection upon reflection. But that's a great metaphor to kind of illustrate that there's, there's really no depth that you will crush each other. This will be empty and void. We're, we're built for something else. 
We're, we're built by our relationships. Our human relationships, church, they'll never fulfill you. Everyone will fail you. Adam and Eve, will, will, we see this in the text. They, they fail each other. You know, again, I, I think it would have been interesting if we were to just kind of dissect this moment that we read where Adam and Eve are anticip- or sorry, they're enticed by and, and they're you know, entertaining the idea of the fruit. You know, there's something that we know about ourselves that you get us in the right environment, we're going to make the wrong decision. Because the relationship that we have with our creator has, has fallen uh, away from view and we are looking to other things. Uh, for self-therapy, I go to the motorcycle store. Usually it's Blackfoot Motorsports, and, and I'll just caress the tank and seats, <laughs> wrap, wrap my hand around the throttle, and I'll do that long enough until a salesman comes out, and then I realize that I'm, I'm headed for trouble. <laughs> because they'll start telling me things, features about the bike, deals and financing. I know if I engage long enough, I'm going to transgress. I'm going to come home and be like, honey, I made a mistake. <laughs> you laugh, but it's happened. Because I know in that moment my heart wants something. There's a promise there that that is telling me there's a life with created things that promises me something great. And then as soon as I do it, what I feel? Guilt? Shame? And a a vague promise that the wind blowing in my face might melt those tears away. We enter into brokenness again and again and again, not because we don't want better. It's because we can't do any better without a right relationship with our Savior. You see, we're shaped by relationships, but apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we'll always tear each other down. In fact, I invite you, as Scripture tells us, in our relationship with God, apart from the work of Jesus and the indwelling of His Spirit, we're estranged and we're broken. If you don't see that in the text, it's really plain, but let me point it out. Verse 23 and 24, it says, Then the Lord God sent them out of the garden. He drove them out. He closed the gate. The result of our transgression, the result of our rebellion, the result of saying, not an image bearer, but a shot caller, not, not your way, but mine, God, is we are cut off, we are cast out, we are condemned. And, if, and it's no wonder that like, that image should really hurt if you allow it to get in. Put your name in the story if you need to. Because this is our relationship with God apart from the saving work of Jesus. That you are cut off. You are cast out. You are condemned. You know, there is no more painful experience than that of excommunication. This is what we use to punish prisoners in the highest degree. It's social isolation. Put them in the hole. People go crazy. This is, this is why I shake my head when there's a generation going, no, I, I think that sounds fun. I guess prison doesn't have, you know, Uber Eats. <laughs> to be cut off. We don't want you. To be cast out. You're not welcome. To be condemned. And there's no going back. 
the gospel story is this. That, is, that has been our inherited gift from generation after generation, from my parents, my grandparents, and so on and so forth until now, of a squandered treasure that we can't get back on our own until Jesus, God who steps into our story and faces the same fruit that we've, been, that we've seen, that we've been given, and stands where we fall, faces every temptation that we know, lives a life we couldn't, dies a death we deserve. Church, the exciting part of, of the gospel in relationship to relationships is that we should be experts in this area. We're the only people who have the remedy to get it right, to see them mended, to have a right understanding of who we are as people, and to have the joy of, of shame falling off. But, but the sad truth of it is, is we tend to have the other stereotype. I want us to get that right. Because we're built in relationships. Church, we, we see this as, if we were just reverse these things, we're, we're built in relationship with self, others, and God. We're built, we're built but it's, we're built up through a right relationship with God. If you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, here's the beauty of it. You, you are acquitted. You are pardoned. That means you have unlimited, new granted access to the unlimited light and warmth of your Savior that fills you as a mirror the way you've been created for. It means that not only do you get that access, it means if you take the story, the, the image is this, that through the work of Jesus, we are filled with his Spirit by the love of the Father that the gate swings open. If I could ask you to catch one thing this morning, it would simply be this. There are no relationships in this life with others or yourself that will mean anything apart from a right relationship with God. You will flounder and break them every time. And so we send you every Sunday. And so you're, how do we send you away from a place where we should be able to do this right into the kind of vacuous black hole of relationships that are probably going to chew you up and spit you out? It's because of this. In a right relationship with Christ, that brilliant light and warmth will always satisfy. It will never leave you empty. And listen, if you've experienced relationship breakdown, and chances are that's all of you, and if you haven't yet, just hang in there. It's coming. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying that as somebody who's standing squarely in Scripture. I'm saying that from personal experience. I, I can preach from a heart full of scars and heartache. But my, my hope is this, that through a right relationship with Christ, we, 2 Corinthians 5, we are made ambassadors of reconciliation. Emissaries of a gospel that says, hey, because we have a right relationship with the one who we never thought it was possible we could have a right relationship with, this should be okay. Dare I say, this should be easy in light of that. Doesn't mean it feels that way. Because even as I say this, I know I, it, for anyone here who's been hurt, or maybe even done the hurting, or maybe both, the names and the faces of those people come to mind. And, and here's why I would encourage you. If there's one thing worth preserving in those relationships, it's the image of God. That those people, as you are filled with the light and the warmth of a Savior, 
and reflect that, they can be sparked into life as well. I mean, that's, that's what we celebrate as people come into faith in Jesus. It's like, hey, they're shining with a brilliance that's not theirs. And that's what we celebrate when we send you out, that you can go and do that to others. Church, like, you're not just the welcoming team here. You are the welcoming team out there. This is, this is how we're created. This is the, the work, the purpose. And what about self? You, you might go, that sounds great. But we live in a day and age, we're really aware. We're very introspective. We have a great handle on the fact that we're not doing so hot on the inside. Well, good news. The, the human condition of our endless ceasing, our endless desire to cover and to hide, to, to deal with shame, it gets solved. In Christ, shame comes off. On the cross, Jesus was stripped bare. He was mocked. He was exposed. Arms nailed apart and open, unable to cover up. He who knew no shame became shame for us so that we would have no shame. So from fig leaves to garments made of animal skins to the Old Testament blood that was sprinkled on the people. This is God's subtle hint. You know you need to cover up, but that's at a great cost. Something has to die. I shared this with the kids a few weeks back. We were talking about the Old Testament temple system. I'm like, the priest would get up and he'd sprinkle blood on the people. And I'm like, that's weird. <laughs> the, the image is this. And the, and, and the idea that that makes you clean, it's like this is lifeblood poured out, which is a symbol of like this is death. You are sprinkled in death. This covers over the one thing that arrives in the opening scenes of the story that God didn't create, our rebellion and our shame. He's like, I don't want to see that. That has nothing to do with my good creation, so I have to cover that up. And you can't do that yourselves. Fig leaves don't work. This is a, this is a benchmark. This, this is a placeholder. This is a way in which we understand the coming work and the brilliance of the gift that is made, a pos made possible in Christ, who is the, the final and perfect sacrifice. And Hebrews chapter 10, verse 21, 22 says this, that, since we have a great, uh, great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That idea of let us draw near. Parents, when your kids have done something wrong, where do they go? Not near you. <laughs> They'll find all the hiding places in your house. And if they can't hide, where do their eyes go? To the floor. Like, you'll see me do this with my daughters, and only them, otherwise it would be weird. Like, I'll get forehead to forehead with them. Sometimes I'll do a little staring contest. All you can see is their pupils. I'll be like, hey there, kiddo. Hey, dad. Why can we do that? There's no shame. If I do that with any of you, I will break that gaze really quick, because I'm like, <laughs> they're going to leave this church really fast. But when one of us, because I'm not perfect, when one of us breaks that relationship, where do our eyes go? They don't, they don't meet. It says that with full assurance we can draw near is as if to say our eyes can go back to the one, the one we long to see, the one we've been hiding from, and we can be filled with him and shine that to others. And it says that we can be sprinkled clean. Church, 
this is, this is what it means when you're washed by his blood. We get to celebrate baptism next week, which is a symbol of somebody going under the water into the grave and coming out and sharing in Jesus' resurrection. In other words, like, hey, uh, the old stays under the water and the new lives forever. And clean from an evil conscience. This is a throwback to chapter 3 of Genesis. The word for conscious literally means the ability to discern right from wrong. The gift that they wanted so badly. The promise that they thought, this, I'm going to turn my life from image bearer to shot caller and went so terribly wrong. It cleanses us from the evil conscience that, you know what? One day in Christ, and we are being transformed more and more into his likeness, we get wisdom to know good and evil and choose Jesus. That's what we get. That's where right relationships are built. That's how we grow in a right relationship with him. That's how we grow in a right relationship with each other. That's how we repair Broken relationships with each other because that's how God repaired a broken relationship with him. And church, that's how you do it with yourself. You know, I, I quoted Narnia again in the last service. It seemed to work, so we'll do it again. Where there's, there's a beautiful moment that, that actually happens multiple times in the books where Aslan, who is the king figure, the, the messianic savior rescues by ransoming through the cost of his own life. He, he ransoms a traitor named Edmund who, and then bringing him back to his siblings says, you know, see your brother, see your sisters and brother. We will talk of old things no more. That's shame falling off. In, in Jesus the old falls off. It's not that you don't remember it. It's just you don't, we don't talk about it. It's not a thing. That's the old you. That's dead. And you know what's beautiful in C.S. Lewis's writings? As you continue in the story, such a critical moment that if you're a follower of Jesus, grabs your heart because you read yourself in the story as, I'm Edmund. And it doesn't get brought up again. Aslan doesn't go, remember, the only time it comes up again is actually when Edmund speaks of himself to his cousin Eustace, who comes into Narnia at a later stage, and he says to him, you know what, you were only an ass, but I was a traitor. Sorry, that's a direct quote. What he's saying is, you may have been a fool in this world, but I, I was the worst of all things. I, I betrayed the king. And the only one that can say that is one whose shame has fallen off and it doesn't stick anymore. Church, I desire that for you, that you could boldly repair broken relationships and that you could celebrate that we're not a religious people. We're a people who have right relationship with our Savior and that makes all the difference. So let me pray and then we'll celebrate. So Father, uh, again, thank you that we can have relationships the way that we are created to have them. Thank you that the, you made that repair possible through your son. Thank you that through the filling of your spirit, we can walk in that in this life. 
Lord, thank you in advance that although we'll experience and have experienced brokenness, there is repair, there is restoration, there is reconciliation in you. And Father, thank you that you take, you took my shame on the cross. Lord, you were exposed so that I could be clothed. You were laid bare so that, God, I could be clothed in your righteousness. Father, the sin of the world was, was heaped on the Son so that I could be washed clean. So, Jesus, thank you. And for anyone in this room who has not yet received that, Lord, would they, in the quietness of their heart and their thoughts, say, Jesus, that's what I want. That's what we want for our friends and family that we pray for. That's what we want as we see this church grow. That we grow in you. That we know you more. And that our relationships would be deep and rich as a result. And it's your precious name we pray. Amen.